Do you know who came after Victoria? Edward. Which Edward? I don't Anybody know. Anybody else watching Victoria on the BBC? <laughs> <laughs> no, I am. It's really good. <laughs> Welcome back to You Know What I've Been Wondering with Sarah and Jane and Philippa. Say hi. hi. We have a special guest this week, Philippa Roberts, joining us from Boston via Skype. So Jane and I are shoved in front of one microphone together right now. It's okay. We're cuddling. Yeah, it's very cozy. I like it. Philippa, yeah, how are you cute. doing? I'm doing well. I just got a tattoo. I changed my hair. Wow. What is the tattoo of? It is uh, one stem with two carnations on, a small one and a big one, and I got it matching with my big. Aww. And now Sarah's not special. Sorry, Sarah. Oh, uh, wow. I hate being told that I'm not special. It's really it's one of my pet peeves. No, Philippa and I also tattoos. have tattoos. tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. Whatever. You were still um, first, so you are still special. Yeah, still special for being the first. Okay. Jane has something that she really wants to talk about. All right. I just need to talk about what happened with NASA this week because it just infuriates me. And this is genuinely something that Philippa and I know nothing about. I know. I I don't want to take away time from all of our segments, but I felt like the world needed to know what the real story was. Okay. Please tell me the real story. So a couple of weeks ago, NASA announced that um, yesterday was going to be the first ever all-female spacewalk. Oh. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, which in my mind, I was like, oh, a whole group of ladies. And then I looked it up and it was just two women, really. We're going to go together. All right, we together. love a duo. Um, but <laughs> still, it was the first time that a spacewalk was going to be with only female people. Okay. But then this Monday, after everyone got all excited for the first all-female spacewalk, NASA announced that they were canceling the all-female spacewalk because they didn't fit, they didn't pack enough spacesuits to fit both the female astronauts. You're kidding. What? Nope. Could that be fixed pretty easily? That seems fixable. Nope. They didn't have spacesuits that would fit both of them. So they couldn't do it. They canceled it. The spacewalk happened yesterday, but they replaced one of the female astronauts with a male astronaut. What? Yep. That's awful. I'm sorry. How does all of NASA not have two spacesuits to fit females? Um, Something seems like BS. I know. I read an article about it, and basically... Um, I'm shocked. This, so the spacesuits that NASA is currently using are, like, the spacesuits that they made and designed in the 70s. Like, they haven't really made are any new... Are you kidding? No, they haven't really made oh any new spacesuits. Like 50 years ago. I know. Um, well, after we went to the moon in 1969, thank you, song from Even Stevens, for always making me know this. <laughs> Sarah's hiding her face. We went to the moon in 1969. Yes, I'm I would just like Even... to go one day without an Even Stevens reference. <laughs> <laughs> um well, after that, NASA thought they were going to have, like, a whole bunch of space missions. So they were tailoring spacesuits to specific astronauts. But then there got to be, like, such a large amount of astronauts that that wasn't really cost effective. So they were making um, individual pieces for spaces, like legs, arms, torsos. And they all came in. It's like a terrible arts and craft project. I know. And they <laughs> made them in the sizes extra small, small, medium, large, extra large. But then as the years went by and they were making less and less spacesuits, there were a couple of missions that, in which spacesuits were destroyed. 
And they just weren't making more, so they had less and less. And, they, and with budget cuts coming, they decided to... They s- cut the spacesuits? <laughs> they decided to stop making extra smalls, and then smalls were the next to go. So now they only really have mediums, large, and extra larges. This is ridiculous. And, and the two women that were scheduled to do the spacewalk, they're two badass ladies in our are Anne McLean and Christina Koch. I love you. Um, and I believe Christina Koch was the one that still did the spacewalk. Um, poor Anne McLean. She'll walk in space soon. Um, she better. But I'll personally fund her spacesuit. Like, what? Basically, both of them were size medium, but they <laughs> only had one medium spacesuit. So when they planned the spacewalk. This is a ridiculous problem. I know. This is like I all know. the things that I expect NASA to cancel for. I There's know. only one medium. The skeptic in me is saying there was another medium that went to a man. No, I don't know if that was the case. But the other woman basically was going to bite the bullet and wear a large. Yeah. Um, but then they got to space and, like, gravity affected her body in a way that they didn't exactly predict. So the large was just, like, not comfortable. Um, and I found this quote from this astronaut named Peggy Whitson, who is the female astronaut who holds the record for the most spacewalks oh. for, for a female astronaut, which is 10. I want to look up what the I men's. science ladies. Um, and she said that doing spacewalks is much more challenging for women, mostly because the suits are sized bigger than the average female and just, like, don't fit comfortably. Oh. Um, as I've been reading about this, I was kind of happy to read that there's a lot more women involved in NASA than I thought there were. Like, okay. it's about 50-50 right now, which oh, is good. That's oh, good. that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. But it's starting this whole discussion with women in STEM about how, like, the gear that they need is mm-hmm. designed for male bodies. Yeah, that's yeah. super true. I actually read an article recently that's, like, how the entire world has been designed around men from, like, iPhones to headphones and stuff like that. It's super, It was super interesting. It's true. That's awful. I know. I wish, so I wanted to share that with y'all because I was like, what? <laughs> wow. All right. Well, this one's dedicated to Anne McLean. Anne McLean. All right. We dedicate this episode to you, Anne McLean. I doubt you'll listen, but you're a hero <laughs> in my heart. She's currently at the International Space Station, but maybe she listens <laughs> to I think they all listen to this up there. Uh, wow. All right. Anything else you want to share about your week? All right. Do you want to jump right into it? Sure. So we brought in Philippa because Philippa... Is from England? Remind me again where you're from. I feel like I remember this you This is being a layered question. From Belgium? <laughs> okay, so Phil, do you want to do the, the abbreviated version of where you're from? Born in France, primarily raised in Belgium, British and American citizenship. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So it's super relevant, and I'm excited because I feel like Philip is going to be really angry. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to be less angry because it's Jane saying it. That's so fair. I feel like when I'm you tell me question. that my accent's wrong, I get mad. Oh, yeah, it's not, but it's not going to be me. It's going to be Jane, who's a lovely person. And not yeah, me. and I'll be like, Jane's saying this based off of pure facts that she has researched. I would have researched it. I would have just, <laughs> just tell you stuff to, like, undermine you. All so, right, are you ready? So the question you said last week, you said, I've been wondering, what came first, the British accent or the American accent? Do we have guesses on either side? I think... Based off of what, like, a bunch of Shakespeare people have said and other people, I have heard, and, you know, I'm just, I'm a blind truster, um, (laughs) that the American accent came first. What do you think, Philippa? I really don't know. I've heard this theory of Sarah's a lot. I'm also, like, it can make sense because what came from America is what was coming from England. So that Mm -hmm. can make sense. I just still, part of me is like, (laughs) The Bostonian accent is closest to English, and that's the one that's supposed to be the most colonial. So, uh, why? Would, so, like in my head, that's saying that that 
it's closer to British coming first. <laughs> yeah, I feel like okay. Sarah's going to be right. I'm going to leave you guys hanging in anticipation for a little ah! bit um, and talk about the differences between the two accents. So the main difference that people really care about is um, roticity. Um, so a rhotic accent is when um, R's are pronounced. Oh. Basically, so the word hard, when you have a rhotic accent, is said hard. But when you have a non-rhotic accent, it's said, like, hard. hard. Forgive me, Philip, if I ever... <laughs> if you want me to ever say the word, just like, that's what So the debate is, like, what came first? Rhotic, which is what a general American accents are, and then non-rhotic, which is what general RP Aren't there is. some British accents, though, in which they pronounce the R? Yeah, I mean... At the end of this, I was going to say that, like, in both accents, there are exceptions. Like, right. there are areas of England in which the accent is rhotic, and there are areas of America where the accent is non-rhotic. Right. Um, okay. Like, in Boston, Park the Cod, Harvard, Yard, they don't really say the R's. That was really good. <laughs> that was really good. See, in my head, the entire time you're saying this, I'm like, the Boston one is the one that's non-rhotic. And there are some areas of the South where it's, like, colloquially non-rhotic. Like, the example they gave me in this one article I read was, like, when your waitress calls you a sugar... I was like, <laughs> <laughs> does it count though if you just cut off the R versus like skipping it? Like, I think it's different. That's what a lot of British accents I don't know. Do. I don't want to like ever um, imitate someone poorly. The typical British <laughs> accent is referred to as re- received pronunciation, RP. Um, but it's also called public school English or BBC English. Oh. And the general American oh. accent sometimes known as Gen Am, or oh. what Americans think of as no accent. Get over that one, guys. We have an accent. Um, <laughs> an accent. It's also called newscaster voice or network English. Oh. oh. So that's like when you go to school for journalism and broadcasting, that's the language that they like. I guess. They're like the accentless English. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I just that's think the same thing like- with the RP accent, though. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's like you don't want to show a regional accent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So those are the, like the non-regional British and American accents. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Understood. I always think of it as like the old time radio voice, you know? <laughs> <laughs> On Broadway. All right. So let's get into like a timeline of it. All right. Oh, boy. So the first English colonists arrived in the New World at Jamestown, Virginia in 1607. As we know. So at that point, we all had the same accent, presumably. At least England and America. Okay. Um, also, keep in mind that those are the first English colonists. Like, they were yeah, colonists. No, they were people. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, I found out that the first audio recording of the human voice wasn't made until 1860, and it was made in France. So we have no auditory proof of what any of the accents right. were until, like, 300 years. So we have no real way of knowing this for sure, but this is what is believed by historians and linguists. Okay. Um, Based off of, like, writings and stuff like that? I guess so. And first-hand accounts of, well, like... Because they described... used to write phonetically. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. yeah. So words would have different spellings depending on where you are. Right. True. I will say for Sarah's context, she heard me listening to a really creepy thing a couple minutes ago. Oh, yeah. What was that? I was curious. I was like, well, the first audio recording of a human voice wasn't made till 1860. Was What was that? And I looked it up, and it's these French children singing Claire de Lune, and it's really creepy. I hate that. <laughs> well, I did hear it. It was really creepy. I didn't like it. That I can 100% believe. Children? I used to listen to so many creepy French children singing songs, like, on cassettes in school, and it what? really creeped me out. Yeah, I can imagine. There's, children singing is really creepy. 
All right. Are you ready for the reveal of which accent came first? I think Cyrus could be right. (laughs) All right. Well, the Industrial Revolution comes around in the 18th century, and that's really what spurs the invention of the RP accent. So by process of elimination, American came first. (gasps) (laughs) Okay. Can I also point out real quick? No one in England actually really speaks with the RP accent. So if you're basing the stuff of the RP accent, then like, okay, fine. But that's the like made up accent that you're going to like teach. Did everything else derive from the RP accent? Have you heard someone from the North? Have <laughs> <laughs> you watched Game of Thrones? Do they have it's RP the, accents? Yeah. All right. So what this article I found said was that, and many, I read many things and they all kind of said the same thing. Um, and that was um, in the 18th century, the Industrial Revolution came around, and that sort of switched who had wealth in the world. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Britain, a lot of formerly lower-class people began to gain wealth and wanted to distinguish themselves from their lower-class roots. So they invented a new posh way of speaking with non-rhotic speech that took off in southern England, especially among the upper and upper-middle classes, as a signifier of class and status. And then this posh accent was standardized as RP and taught widely by pronunciation tutors to people who wanted to learn to speak fashionably. Does the queen have the RP accent or is that a completely different accent? I don't, I feel like the queen has her own accent. Yeah. Because they have like a very posh accent, you know? I don't know. I feel uh, like the RP is not that posh. Mm. It's like a notch down. Okay. Um, but I am not the expert, so actually Jane needs to answer that. <laughs> well, it says it spread across England and the Empire because of the armed forces, the civil service, and later the BBC. Um, oh. So it was just sort of, like, considered the standard way of speaking that was taught to children. Like, if you want to speak publicly, you use this voice. Yeah. So RP is actually the youngest version of a British accent. Yeah. It sounds like maybe. it. Maybe. It sounds like it, because if it was spread... You know, I think maybe the other accents derived from the influence of the RP accent on the regional accent. Maybe. That's what that's what I'm interpreting. But you I are, feel are, like no one will naturally speak the RP. Like, that's something everybody has to be taught at some point if they're going down a route where they need to be speaking more of the masses. Yeah. Like, that's something you get taught in, like, theater school... Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Well, I had so many people when I told them that I was doing this topic this week, they would ask me like, oh, like, we're gonna, you're going to find out what Shakespeare was spoken with. So I did, I have a section on okay, how, oh, what Shakespeare great. was spoken with. Um, and I found this guy, Ben Crystal, who, who gave this speech um, at the English Speaking Union for the 450th birthday of Shakespeare. Oh, okay. Um, and he cool. basically says that anyone who is British and wants to go into acting um, in Britain is taught that they won't be cast in Shakespeare if they don't use an RP accent, which is interesting though, because that's not really the accent. Right. Cause the RP didn't come around. Until- I think it's the point that like the RP accent is the clearest in that there isn't like too much inflection in any areas. So mm-hmm. with Shakespeare already being somewhat hard for people to hear, by using that accent, it makes it the most, like, understandable for people. Yeah, it's mm. easy for your ear. Yeah. Because yeah. we had to do RP accent stuff in my theater classes. So there was a lot of debate over what um, 
Shakespeare being spoken in its original time sounded like. Um, one Shakespeare director, Sir Trevor Nunn, claimed that American accents were closer um, than contemporary English accents to the accents used in Shakespeare. Um, but John Barton, um, a different Shakespeare scholar, suggested that the Shakespearean accent would have sounded to modern ears more like a cross between contemporary Irish, Yorkshire, and West Country accents, which I don't really know what West Country accents mean. Like but... Somerset. That's no, so... I only know what a Yorkshire accent sounds like because of Jody Whitaker. Oh, thank you. And Dr. my family. <laughs> oh, that's your that's your family's accent. My family's from Yorkshire. You're oh. out You oh, have yeah. to a lot of this. I've never met your family, your British family. So I would. Why would I'm I know it's there? <laughs> my dad was raised in Cambridge. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> the accent that was used for Shakespeare is now referred to as original pronunciation, um, and it's much quicker than RP. And this guy, Ben Crystal, who gave this speech, gave an example of it, and it sounds very much like kind of hard to pin down as an accent. It sounds kind of Scottish, Irish. Um, he asked people in the audience to say what it sounded like. One person said it sounded like a pirate accent. One person said Canadian. <laughs> Iron um, accent. That's true. We don't think about England and Canada. I mean, they also had a lot of French influence in Canada, but still. All right. I'm going to try and imitate what Ben Crystal um, <laughs> did. I'm so with, I just have one sentence prepared. Because um, he did the opening speech from Romeo and Juliet, um, which, of course, starts with two households, both alike in dignity. And, okay, I wrote this out phonetically, so hopefully I said it the same way he does. Um, he said, he's like, it would really be said more like, Two households, both alike in dignity. Oh. Like, I, that was terrible. It wasn't even close. But he sounded very Scottish to me when he did it. I swear I'm normally very you know, good at you said They said you used to write phonetically. I do have phonetically written Shakespeare on my wall in there if you want uh. to check it out and give it a look, come back. <laughs> so it's kind of, and he said that this was because um, England at the time, Elizabethan England, was such a melting pot of accents. Like, people living there were from everywhere. Mm. Um, so the accent really blended together and was kind of like, we don't really know where this is from. It's kind of a unique way of speaking. It's like me. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, but he told this story that I thought was, like fascinating about how original pronunciation is a lot faster than RP. Like you were saying earlier, Philip, about how RP is considered easier to understand. This guy said it's much slower to say. And he told the story mm. of how um, there was this Shakespeare company that did sort of an experimental production of Romeo and Juliet in which some performances they would do original accent and some performances they would do RP. The original pronunciation production was 10 minutes shorter than the RP <gasps> production. Ten minutes? Ten minutes shorter. That's a significant portion. Mm -hmm. Also, in the script of Romeo and Juliet, the chorus refers to the play as the two hours traffic of our stage. And that's more of an accurate time of how long the show would be because modern productions of Romeo and Juliet tend to last like three, three and a half hours. Oh my god! But it's supposed to be a two hour play. <laughs> he also pointed out that the original accent is much easier to do as a vocalist, as an actor. Like he did a speech in RP and he was like very uptight and his neck was very straightened and strained. He said he wasn't getting as much airflow and then he like got down his body and started doing the original accent. He was like much more supported. It was easier for him to do. Oh. So like there's all these reasons why the original accent was just that just worked for Shakespeare at the time more than RP does today. But now in England, they're like, no, you have to have RP if you ever want to dream of being cast. My high school Shakespeare teacher always would say that it takes the average American audience member 10 minutes to acclimate <laughs> to like 
Shakespeare speak. Yeah. I mean, I still like, I don't, I don't know all the Shakespeare plays and I've like in the last two years, I've seen several that I haven't, that I'd never seen before and I hadn't read before. Like mm. I saw Twelfth Night for the first time. And I like, it, it did really take me like 10 minutes to be like, what's going on? Because first of all, they always start with a lot of exposition. And so <laughs> you're just like, what's, who are you? But yeah, I definitely can see that as someone who recently has seen a show that they didn't already yeah. know. Um, so the industri- the Industrial Revolution also affected um, the way American accents were said. Um, but I thought it was interesting that the, before the Industrial Revolution, um, the cities that were that did the most trading with England, they were all trading ports, um, had the most like RP inspired accents. So like Boston, Boston, Richmond, Virginia, Charleston, South Carolina, and Savannah, Georgia, all had like those the- were the four most with um, England. I don't know if those are the only, but those were like the examples oh, okay. that I found. That really, that's surprising. Um, like Boston, I expected. I didn't expect Savannah at all. Uh, yeah. Well, wealthy plantation owners of the South, like they oh, did a lot of training. Oh, never and, mind. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And never mind. So like the British accent, or at Cotton least like gin. an imitation of it, mm. was like what inspired a lot of those accents. In my head, I just hear like a John Goodman voice going, "I do declare." <laughs> <laughs> That was them, I think, imitating RP. <laughs> so you're saying I, RP came well, first. Well, those, that's why those accents don't have R's as much because, like, mm, during that time. That totally makes yeah. sense. Um, but then the Industrial Revolution hits and the wealthy people are now less and less people from the South and more right. people from, like, the Rust Belt area, yeah. which yeah. I had to look up what the Rust Belt was because... I hear it, like, in the news all the time, like, in the Rust Belt states, their votes went to so-and-so, <laughs> but I'm like, oh, I don't know what the Rust Belt is. You act um, like we're living in the 1960s. <laughs> so, it's the manufacturing hubs of the Mid-Atlantic and Midwest, New York, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, yep. Cleveland, Chicago, Detroit, that region. That's the yeah. Rust Belt. So, we learned a lot about that in high school, mm-hmm. like my area. So, so like, those were the reasons. Yeah, that were suddenly where the rich people were living when mm-hmm. the Industrial Revolution came around. Yep. And the immigrants in those areas were less from Britain and more from Scotland, Ireland, um, Germany, and, Nor- and Northern British. Oh. So those accents were more influenced by those ways of speaking. Is that why Pennsylvanians say use guys? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> it goes on to be like in areas such as Pennsylvania, like the accent kind of went off on its own. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being so confused when I I went to school in Buffalo for a couple of years, and when I got there, all of a sudden everyone had accents that I was I was like I've never heard of a Buffalo accent, but I remember this one girl in particular being like, "I'm gonna grab some salad on the way to class," and then I realized <laughs> that like everyone just said like those types of A's and that really strong A sound. But it's interesting because the general American accent, like it was thought to have come from those cities, but then. New York, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Chicago all sort of developed their own accents. Right. So now the general American accent is, like, really only spoken in a small section of the Midwest. Oh, that's so interesting. Where does the Minnesota accent come from? Minnesota. Minnesota. Like, I love that when you say Minnesota, every single person has to go, Minnesota. (laughs) Hey, you sound like the person from Frozen when you do it like that. I do, I do. I always think of that SNL sketch, which I can't find on youtube anywhere but bill haters spoke about it in an interview recently so i know it existed i didn't make it up in my mind where they did like a minnesotan morning talk show and they did this 
one segment where they would show like two women in Hollywood wearing the same dress. And the segment was called, <laughs> they both look nice. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not a general American accent. But are you talking more like Kansas? I guess. Dorothy. <laughs> she had the general American. Jen Am. Okay, but wait. So to settle this, everything you're saying to me sounds like American accent came second. No, it came first. Because so- it was developing more and more after the P- the um well like it we all sort of had the same accent and then rp came after and then like the american accent and the english accent and the rp accent both like got more nuanced and had more variations to them gotcha so it's more that we all had the same accent and then ours just evolved differently yeah so like gen am i think was like what it all used to be and then it like splintered off in america and england also gotcha kind of splintered off although it kind of does now that i'm saying these things a lot sound like northern english and scottish and irish like those all like maybe we're existed separately yeah i mean that makes sense because they were very separate yeah Minis- prairie home companion is minnesota i was like how do i what I, why are you laughing at a prairie home companion <laughs> it's really wholesome <laughs> so i know you made me listen to it <laughs> all it's random bits about ketchup and powdered milk i know none of this makes any sense to you but i mean i know what powdered milk is (laughs) they had like a song about it that i don't even think they were sponsored by powdered milk but they would have like a segment every episode where they would sing how's your family try some powdered milk powdered milk (laughs) why is that a thing why is there powdered milk okay why does canada keep it i knew you were gonna bring that up (laughs) um so in conclusion (laughs) oh that's the end yeah that's really all i have it says there are regional exceptions to both these general American and British sounds. Most British accents are non-rhotic, but some accents of southeastern England are rhotic. And most American accents are rhotic, but some areas of the American Southeast and Boston are non-rhotic. Mm. So it's like there's exceptions to everything. Gotcha. So the- but I think the official answer is that even though not a lot of them... I feel like maybe just because I grew up with this accent and everyone I know really speaks Gen Am. I'm like, everyone in America speaks Gen Am. We're not in the minority, but... That's what you think, but then you go to, then you go to the Bronx and you're like, oh. <laughs> I also grew up in New England, and it's interesting because everyone who's like 60 or over, like to me, sounds like they have a Boston accent, but then everyone who's younger doesn't. And I think that oh. really has to do with like all of us watching so much television. I agree. And and that makes sense. Yeah. So we've all just sort of like Gen Am spread that way. Mm-hmm. And we like, that's where we're all getting our accent from. Cause like all the old men from my hometown are like, yeah, welcome to Bupe Haba with a lobster, uh, <laughs> a nice and fresh. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't think of another hour. It's wicked good. <laughs> so yeah, that's my little great. Philippa, are you angry? I feel like I'm not because I'm still taking it as like maybe what America has now is older than the RP accent, but I do not think the RP accent represents what Britain's accent is, and that actual British accents are older. And that my family's accent is older, so that's all that matters. I want your family to be more historically impressive than mine. Yeah, exactly. Um, All right, so we have our new segment, Too Afraid to Ask, um, from Reddit's thread, Too Afraid to Ask, and this week, Jane picked a Too Afraid to Ask question. I did. Now this one, there is an immediate answer, but I thought it was still worthy of discussion. Say there's a person with post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. Mm-hmm. And their condition has gotten so bad that they have blocked out all memory of the bad things that have happened to them. 
Oh. Is that a symptom or a cure? It's a, it's a, it's a sim- symptom. It's, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Hold on. Um, see, the thing is, is my, my immediate response is it's a symptom. Mm-hmm. My secondary response is that that is the body's way of curing it. Like it is, a, mm-hmm. it is a biological cure that like your body has created for you. I it's feel like, like it's more a protection that your body has created for you. Oh uh, yeah, protection, like an immune system response. Yeah, but that's a still like a cure. Like when I'd you're... say psychologically, you're not cured. If you can't remember it, though, you, like yeah, that's you don't the know thing. what you're cured from. I think I think it's a symptom, but I think it is your body's way of of trying to cure itself. Like when your immune system kicks in. I, I have the exact same mental process of you as you of being like, oh, it's a symptom. And then being like, but wait, because like moving forward, like, do you have to deal with it then? But like you do is the thing because it's not just the memories that are your issue. Like you still are going to like have triggers. You're still going to have yeah. bodily responses. Right. So the PTSD isn't cured. No, right. it's still there. It's just like even if you don't like know exactly what brought it on and like you might have flashes of it. I don't I don't know. But yeah. like that was immediately the answer I found that it. was like, no, PTSD still exists in you. It just. Yeah, that is interesting, though. Yeah. It's almost worse because like, as you said, you could get triggered for something and have no idea why. But, like, you hear a certain noise and all of a sudden you're triggered and you're standing there kind of like, why did that trigger me? Yeah. Yeah. Are we ready? All right, explain to me how aliens are real. Okay, so (laughs) I think you're going to be a little disappointed. (sighs) No. You can't prove they're not real. I can't prove that they're not real. This is not a topic in which I prove that they are not real, but this is kind of going to be a topic in which I prove that this isn't proof of alien existence. But if you want to believe it, that's fine. Um, You can just ignore many of the things I'm going to say, and that's okay. (laughs) This is the episode where one of us is always going to be made a little mad. (laughs) (laughs) I believe that aliens are real, but I... I do too. I don't know if I believe they've visited Earth, but... Yeah. So Jane asked me about crop circles. Um, and actually this is what you didn't know is that it's very fortunate that Philip is here for this as well, because the first thing I found out is that crop circles, 90% of them have appeared in Southern England. <gasps> it's a very, very British phenomenon. Oh, Ooh, are they appearing near where Stonehenge is? Yes. Like that's going to be a lot. So actually <gasps> Wiltshire, England is the most, which is where Stonehenge is, is the most common location for crop circles. Can we go? That's go near, Stone- my um, cousins live near there. So we can. Yes! We'll go stay with Philip's cousin. I'll reread my book about how Merlin built Stonehenge. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so most of this information comes from Live Science, Telegraph, Smithsonian, and the Unnatural Museum of History. I'm not trying to be accused of plagiarism. So the definition of crop circles are is strange patterns that appear mysteriously overnight in farmers' fields, as we know. Um, according to Wikipedia, 26 countries reported some 10,000 crop circles in the last third of the 20th century. About 90% of those were located in southern England. That's it's crazy. You don't think that there are that many fields? <laughs> no. In England? In England? So me. South England, though, is farm country. Yeah, it really is. So, well, like, if there were that many crop circles, like, I feel like in my head, crop circles are huge. They take up, like... I know. That's something that really shocked me, is that crop circles, like, most are less than a quarter of a mile long. They're probably the length of a New York City avenue. What? Yeah. You think that they're these huge things because they're so complex, but they're actually really small. 
Interesting. So a serial a serialologist is someone who researches crop circles and usually they believe them to be extraterrestrial. Why they're called a serialologist? I don't know, but they eat a lot of cereal. They eat lots of cereal. They're seriously into it. So Ooh, the, I like that one. <laughs> they're seriously into it. Um, I might be saying it wrong because instead of E A L, it's E O L. But oh, seriologist. Interesting. All right. Well, the very first indication of a crop circle that some people are like, this is the first crop circle, is from 1678 in a, pamph- in a pamphlet. This artwork entitled The Mowing Devil is like a depiction of an old story of a farmer who made a deal with the devil to mow his field. He like he told his farmhand who was charging him too much for his service that he'd rather pay the devil himself to mow his to mow his crops than this man um and so the woodcut illustration appears to show a demonic creature cutting the field in a circular pattern and the story indicates that the whole field was mysteriously cut not just a small section um like modern crop circles are Mm. so some people are like this is the first crop circle and but some people are like but he just trimmed his lawn right like the devil just trimmed this guy's lawn it's got nothing really (laughs) to do with crop circles also it was about grass and crop circles are specifically about crops like it has to be crops it can't just be a field there's got to be there's got to be something growing there some claim that the first crop circles um which at the at this point they didn't have a name for crop circles so the documentation is just like this mysterious shape um first appeared in tully australia in 1966 a farmer said he saw a flying saucer rise up from a swampy area and fly away. And on that spot, he found a roughly circular area of the city, which he assumed the alien spacecraft had made. Oh. Um, however, the police investigator said it was likely caused by a natural phenomenon like a dust devil or a water spout, um, which I don't really know what they what those are. That sounds like a big Australia problem. <laughs> um, what are you doing, Elba? <laughs> I remember as we're having this conversation that in my timeline game, one of them is like the first crop circle. And I want to see what date that is. Oh, okay. I can hear the card. So I was like, I can hear you shuffling cards. We're boring her. She's playing solitaire. (laughs) (laughs) But some people also don't consider this a crop circle because, again, the mark was made in the grass, not in crops. Um, Get out of here. Yeah, so crop circles, like, they're really a stickler for the fact that it has to be in crops. I feel like in my head, some of the crop circles that I think of happened in, like, deserts. No. Like, if the, if the picture shows them, like, in a brown area, that's just because they were growing wheat. They have to be in crops. What are the ones in, like, South America that are crazy shapes? Is that in sand or wheat? The burns. Oh, those are burns? Sometimes stuff, like, it's, like, burnt. That's that's different. That's not That's not what I'm talking about. Oh, so maybe at the end they'll be like, so in conclusion, aliens aren't real. And I'll be like, yeah, but we don't know about these things. <laughs> we don't, we don't. So most agree that the first real crop circles appeared in the 1970s in the English countryside. And after starting in the 1970s, the number and the complexity of them increased exponentially and peaked in the 80s and 90s with crop circles illustrating complex mathematical equations. Lots of math. Wait, um, what? Say that again. Okay. They the crop circles, the crop had circles math in them? Uh, yes. The crop circles, the shapes and formations of them reflected complex mathematical Oh, like equations. they required math in order to make that. Yes, but also the shapes, like there are these things. I'm going to explain I'm going to explain one in a, just a second. That's my next bullet point, but math, like when you chart them out, some equations lead to 
these crazy shapes and formations Mm -hmm. and many crop circles are those shapes and formations. Mm -hmm. So in July, 1996, one of the world's most complex crop circles appeared across the highway from Stonehenge in (gasps) Wiltshire. And exactly what place you're talking about. Yeah, and the pattern that the crop circle was was called it's called a Julia set, which is a mathematical fractal consisting of values such that a small arbitrary small perturbance in that equation in the set of numbers can cause drastic changes to the sequence. Okay. Um also this pattern's really pretty if you google it. Um Julia sets are so pretty and they literally could be a tattoo. They're like this gorgeous swirl. So I'll show you a photo of what the um <gasps> That is pretty. That's so pretty. Covered. Me gets that as a tattoo. You would, because it's a math, it's a math equation, Philip. But this is the Julia set. Ooh, I like that. Isn't it pretty? But yeah, that's a mathematical equation. So these circles have to do with a sequence of numbers. Okay. That yeah. when charted out, essentially look like that. This pattern unmistakably demonstrated necessary intelligence to pull it off which ones before that hadn't really they thought they were just cool shapes like circles and they were like oh okay like they made a circle but this one they were like someone had to have intense knowledge of math to be able to create a julia set in the crossing and some claim that this circle appeared in less than an hour during the daytime, which would be impossible for hoaxers to accomplish. Now, that was debunked. It was later revealed that the circle had been made in about three hours by three hoaxers very early in the morning, and it just hadn't been noticed until spotted overhead <laughs> the next time. So, yeah, your timeline game says it was made in 1678, but that's just like a myth. There's like not a lot of not a lot of historical evidence to show that there was crop circles during that you time. You should write to the game people. I should, I should be like, excuse me, this has been debunked. So are they extraterrestrial? Here are some theories. In the early 1980s, one explanation for crop circles was that the patterns were produced by, this is wild from start to finish. In the early 1980s, one explanation was that the patterns were produced by, quote, the vigorous sexual activity of horny hedgehogs. I love it. This was an actual scientific theory. In a perfect circle, though? In a perfect circle. (laughs) And, like, big circles. And hedgehogs are small. That's a lot of movement. They thought that hedgehogs are tiny. They thought there was just, like, this crazy population boom of hedgehogs. And they were just getting it on too much. This was a real theory. That would give me a lot of respect for hedgehogs. I know. It's like, wow, the stamina. I know. Other theories. Some have suggested that the circles are created by localized and precise wind patterns or undetectable earth energy fields called ley lines, which, if you remember from Ghostbusters, is what that guy uses to unleash all the ghosts. So maybe crop circles are going to unleash some ghosts. Oh. People who believe in paranormal or extraterrestrial involvement are also called crappies. By people who don't appreciate cereologists as a word, which I find really funny. Can they get like a brand of crop tops that they all wear? Yeah, I would like to bring up the fact that crop has two meanings and they could not be more different. Well, I guess like crop circles are circles that have been cropped as in circles that have been cut. No, I'm talking about crops and shirts or crop tops are shirts that have been cut. Yeah, I guess crops are like, like, yes, they are plants that have to be cut. Well, because cropping, I'm assuming to crop means, like, to cut or to trim. Yes, but crops are also, that's what the physical, like, product oh, is crop. called. Oh, crop! <laughs> yeah, they're called crop circles because they are cut into crops. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like it works both ways in that case. 
because they're crops that have been cropped. Right, but the, I feel like the, I feel like crop tops <laughs> and cropping <laughs> photos came much later than the word crop. You know, like I wonder, I wonder if the word crop was originally the word like to cut, and then they named crops after cutting things. I feel like that's what it has to be. The word crop is starting to lose meaning in my brain. I know, it is. All right, let's move on. Molecular biologist Horace Drew was the first to suggest a connection between crop circles and time travel or, or alien life. He theorizes that patterns are made by human time travelers. So if the crop circle is there, they know they're before or after a certain period of time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Drew also believes that crop circles are messages and has decoded one crop circle that contains a binary code in it um, to say messages such as believe there is good out there. Beware the bearers of false gifts and their broken promises. And we oppose deception. And this one that he decoded is one of the ones that's kind of a little bit unexplainable. Like they haven't been able to figure out if it's like if hoaxers made it or like where it came from. And I will show you a photo of this crop circle. And let me tell you, it is it is creepy. What? It's got an <gasps> alien face in it. Oh my god, is that real? This is a real crop circle. Crazy, right? Wow. Um, debunkers don't quite believe these messages exist and like that he kind of fudged the binary code to say this because like you see what you want to see. Um, because why if these are in mess if these are messages and they are left by extraterrestrials or by human time travelers, why would they write to us in code? Their whole thing is like, okay, well, if they are communicating with us, like first of all, they would have to understand the English language as complex enough to understand like this sort of code. These are all very bi- biblical references. Like it just there's too many layers to it to be like, why would extraterrestrials know all of this? Go to all this effort to like say something we don't understand. Yeah, you know, maybe they only want to reach specific people. Ooh, maybe. Others who favor an alien explanation claim that spacecrafts make the circles or invisible energy beams from space. So they actually don't come down. They, like, shoot the beams from space into the crops to make Mm -hmm. the shapes. There are also groups who believe humans created crop circles, but only through a global psychic power that enables them to make such precise patterns. So many crop circles, the mystique of it is that the math is so advanced Mm -hmm. too creative that they don't understand how it's humanly possible so some think that like you're essentially possessed by a psychic power to do it oh yeah which i think i think is really interesting so in the 2000s there was also a really big theory that crop circles were warnings hidden in numerological codes about the mayan calendar right 12 approached and mathematicians were decoding that and saying like 2012 would be the end people also thought crop circles were pointing in that direction as well. As of right now, the only known and proven cause of crop circles is humans. In September 1991, two men, Doug Bauer and David Chorley, confessed to creating patterns for decades as a prank to make people think UFOs had landed on Earth, starting in 1976. Yep, they were doing it for 15 years, and they continued um, until, like, the 2000s to do it. Um, This was inspired by the Tully report from Australia in 1966. They were like, this guy thought he saw a UFO. I bet we could trick people into thinking that there are UFOs. So they literally created the concept of crop circles. Wow. They didn't take credit for all the circles that had happened between 1976 and 1991. um, But a subsequent series of them 
were made by copycats based off of the original one that they made in 1976. But there still remains a tiny percentage that they couldn't explain. So essentially, 1976 launched this like crop circle phenomenon and like many people were going out and making them in fields. And so most of them at this point are were caught at this point have been explained. Mm-hmm. But there's still some that can't be explained. There are some unproven claims that crops inside real, quote unquote, meaning alien crop circles, show unusual characteristics. But these are like kind of unproven. These were just like serologists trying to be like, look, these ones are different. Being like, there are hoaxes, yes, but some are real. Yeah. So, quote unquote, real or alien crop circles all share these traits. They have, they can, they are composed of circles or curved patterns. They are made at nighttime. They have never been caught on camera. Like, never? Never. That's impressive. The hoaxers have been caught on camera. Oh. But, like, ones that, like, they consider real ones have oh. never been caught on camera. Okay. So some of the most, like, mystifying ones. Well, is not- that because it's... I mean, is that the difference between when it becomes a hoax or not, though? That's not the defining difference. Like, there are people that have confessed to doing it, um, and but some have been caught on camera. But they're the some of the ones that are, like, the craziest not caught on camera, and they've never found anybody who, like... Because there are people who are now known as crop circle artists, essentially. But there are some that, like, they haven't taken... There are some that, that no one's ever taken credit for. And also, they're all... They all have had easy access to roads, which sounds important for, like, hoaxers, but it's also important because when it's close to a road, that means they're discovered really quickly. So it's not something that can be worked on over time. It has to be done quickly. Yeah. It makes sense. It will be seen in the daylight. How do crop circles get reported? The farmer calls it. Calls it in. They call to the police. Calls the police? Mm Mm-hmm. Just to the police. Just go, hey, there's a crop circle in my garden. Yeah, because essentially the police come in and investigate and try to find out if who did it, you know, because it's like vandalism of property. Right, because you're destroying mm-hmm. the that. Okay, that makes sense. Um, there are some unexplainable crop circles, and I will tell you about them. Oh, tell me, tell me, tell me. yeah. Um, I took this from Slapped Ham YouTube channel. So there's the ant crop circle in 1997, and this is the first known crop circle to depict an animal. Copycat, the one that, that, what's interesting about this is that copycat hoaxers have tried to recreate the ant and they can't do it because the math and the precision is so precise that they can't be replicated, which is why scientists and investigators are so confused about it, that they've tried redoing it and they just can't. To wow. prove that it's not extraterrestrial. This is the ant. Interesting. Like the angles, what did they mess up? Like the head? The or angles. The like the. I think it's the head because of that oblong shape. I saw. Yeah. I, I saw like a chart on how they make crop circles. And essentially they put a peg in the ground. And then they mow yeah. in an outwards direction. But I think this like oblong head. Like they haven't figured out how to yeah. do it. Because these circles are perfect Is that circles. the head or is it the tail? Because this one. Oh that's antenna. the tail. Sorry. That's the. What's that called on a bug? An anthrax? It's like the butt. <laughs> Ant parts Googling. Um, anthrax is the butt. No, anthrax is like what you poison people with. Oh. <laughs> How do you guys know this stuff? Science. Science. And it's not Or I didn't listen. Thorax. The ladder. Abdomen? What? But it's on the bottom. <laughs> All right, sure. Sure, it's, it's, it's abdomen. It is the abdomen. It's the end of it. It's the booty. <laughs> so that's one that no one's ever been able to recreate with such precision. So they're like, how how could a person possibly do this? Essentially. 
August 2009 in South Holland, a crop circle of the Vitruvian Man appeared. Do you know who the Vitruvian Man is? Is that the guy with the arms? It's Da Vinci's guy. Yeah. Yep, Da Vinci's guy. Appeared as a crop circle um, in which the body is a Vitruvian Man and he, like, essentially spreads out wings. Um, The imprint measures a third of a mile long. It's one of the largest. Um, and the scale and the the dimensions are enormous. Um, I'll show you a photo. It's almost the entire field, field and it appeared overnight. So that one has people. <gasps> it's like crazy. That one has people being like, "That's oh, huge!" It's huge, yeah. That looks like a butterfly. Oh my gosh, that's like Mothman or something. It's yeah, it is. Um, it's crazy, and that one people like no one's ever been able to explain. No one's taking credit. And the other thing is, personally, I think. What's mysterious about the fact that no one's taking credit is some of the more complex and beautiful ones. People want to take credit for it because they're like, yeah, I want you to see that I did this really cool thing. <laughs> but you know, they're like, so people. committed to making people think that it's, like, extraterrestrial. But most, most of the people that do it, they're, like, trolls, you know? <laughs> Can you imagine if, like, Banksy, like, put out a piece of art that was, like, I'm not a human, I'm an alien. And everyone was like, oh, Banksy doesn't exist. As- <laughs> <I love laughs> Banksy's an alien. Banksy's there an are alien. people out there that 100% would believe that. Absolutely. There's the Koch snowflake, which, so the snowflake, the Koch snowflake is a mathematical equation um, from this, like, Austrian guy. But in this crop circle, the flattened crops were arranged in such a way that they reflected the six points of the snowflakes. So not only was the, were the crops cut in a specific pattern, the flattened ones were laid in, down in a specific way, which is more complex than any one person, like, or group of people, small group of people could figure out, which was very suspicious. Truly so odd. And people who have visited it have said that it's like, it was an eerie experience being on the property. Do you see how the crops, Oh, you can see that they're laid in different directions, right? And they reflect the light to give it a 3D quality. Yeah, how did, it's just the directions that they, yeah, that's the the directions that the crops are laid are different. Do you see that? Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Like that white part. Mm -hmm. And no one else had ever done that before. It's interesting because Koch or Koch or I might have been pronouncing it wrong. Is the last name of the woman who walked in space. Oh, yeah. So full circle. Anyway. Full circle. (laughs) Honor of her. I knew that name sounded familiar when you said it. Um, And the final super odd one has a little bit of a backstory. So in 1974, the Chilbolton Conservatory in England sent out a message, a binary code into space meant for extraterrestrials with information about Earth and about humans and included information on humans' DNA and our genetic makeup, a map of Earth, and a map of the solar system. That was in 1974. In 2001, a series of crop circles started appearing around the Chilbolton Observatory, including a message in binary code that appeared at first sight to be the binary code that we sent out into outer space in 1974 with a few alterations, including the genetic makeup of an unknown species <gasps> and a map of a different solar system. I have chills. Isn't that crazy? I want that to be real so bad. I know, isn't it? That's, that one like really blew my mind. It looks like a computer chip, which I guess makes yeah, that's sense. what codes yeah. look like. So crazy. So why are they probably a hoax? First of all, historical evidence. They are a very recent phenomena Mm. that really started after that 1966 supposed UFO crop circle sighting in Australia. If they really were extraterrestrial, like the, the hardest evidence for extraterrestrials dates back thousands and thousands of years. That's more 
likely than extraterrestrials just coming in and being present starting 50 years ago. There would have been more evidence over time of crop circles, but there, yeah. but there weren't. Um, the number, also an important factor in, in thinking about this as a hoax, is that the number and complexity of them have increased as media coverage of them has increased. Oh. So there's like been like a direct proportion between attention to crop circles and the number of crop circles there are. And like aliens wouldn't be like, oh my God, we're getting so much attention. <laughs> like they wouldn't, they wouldn't do that, you know? Because you know them so well. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I know some aliens and I don't, they don't have egos that thick. Um, <laughs> but not egos after celebrities, so you know. That's but. true. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. There are also no credible reports of someone seeing a circle being made by a UFO or an unnatural phenomenon, which like considering how often they are popping up, is like there just would have been a little bit more evidence considering the frequency of their appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the end of the day, it's whatever you want to believe. Do I think that crop circles are a hoax? Yes. Did that observatory thing really freak me out? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that one's a lot. That one was a lot. It's just even more of like who has access to that information. Right, exactly. Like it, that would have to be an inside job. Plus like <laughs> 20 years past, like the people involved in it probably don't even more work there anymore. Years. More, yeah, almost 30 years. And like, do you still have access to that information 30 years out? Do you remember that stuff 30 years out? Probably not. All right. But the question I have now in my head is why, if the message that we sent out reached an alien species and they were like, and they received it and they're like, okay, cool. We'll send a message back about where we are, like about to where we are. Why would they just do that and not come? Like, why would they send? Maybe they can't come the same way that we can't come. Oh. oh, but we sent out radio waves, and they somehow bend our p- plants. <laughs> Maybe that's yeah. how they do things. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's why, like, if aliens ever actually come to Earth, their technology is so much more advanced than ours that, like, we don't stand a chance to compete. Like, no, we really yeah. don't. If they make it to Earth, then yeah, they're gonna be way more advanced than we are. Yeah, I guess right now the like real space race is like, can we get to them before they get to us? <laughs> Oh, boy. All right. And that is everything about crop circles. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to plug our social media and do a couple of special things. And then we're going to find out what next week's topics are. Yeah. Um, You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at YKWIBW Podcast. You can check out our website at I'vebeenwondering.com, where I will be posting photos of these crop circles I've been talking about. So you can also be chilled to the bone by by their existence. That one code one is creepy. So creepy. So creepy. Check those out on our website. If you like what you're hearing, you can consider joining to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash YKWIBW Podcast. And you're going to get some fun things for donating at the different levels. And finally, if you have something you've been wondering, please, please, please email us at I've been wondering podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to know your thoughts, incorporate it into our show. We want to cover stuff that you're curious about and not just the things that we ramp we want to ramble about. So please email us with your suggestions. And finally, this is the real finally. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on apple podcasts it would mean a lot to us we're so happy that you're listening and if you like us please tell us and if you don't like us please email us (laughs) (laughs) special thanks to 
Lauren Bidwell for listening. Lauren has liked and shared like our stuff a million times. Her and I went to grad school together. Oh, she's been so kind and so supportive. So special thanks, Lauren. When I first saw her, I read her name wrong and I was like, oh, must be a cousin of Sarah's. I was so confused the first time I saw her last name in a class together because I was like, what? I never met someone with the last name so close to mine. Mm -hmm. I was a little shook by it. So thank you, Lauren, so much for listening. Thank you, Philippa, for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Wish you were here in person. Thank you for your contribution to the episode. So thank you for listening. Oh, special thanks to Sarah's mom, who's become our... My mom, a big fan of ours. My mom's the number one fan. She sent me the funniest text. She she accidentally capitalized a sentence in the middle of it, which made it even more funny. So she texted me, "I'm listening to your episode about kombucha, all caps, because I really like it." <laughs> <laughs> and it just, um, did she like us or kombucha? Oh, kombucha. Oh, okay. <laughs> she also she also likes us and thinks we're doing a very very good job. Um. So yes, my mom my mom is a big fan of ours. She she said I have some suggestions. Oh, hopefully, oh about my gosh. hopefully about topics and not about content, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Sarah. You know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering? <laughs> so this past week. You mentioned to me that someone you know is aware of a certain conspiracy theory. Now, this conspiracy theory has been haunting me for days. <laughs> yes! Particularly with a certain creature that was hoo-hooing outside my window <laughs> all morning and I could not sleep. So, I'm Sarah, so excited, yes! I've been wondering what the fake bird conspiracy is. Bird truther conspiracy. Thank you for asking. I specifically haven't looked it up because I was hoping you would ask me. I only know that this is a conspiracy that birds aren't real. <laughs> if, you <laughs> you have information about birds not being real, send it to us. I've been wondering podcast at gmail.com. Oh my gosh. I'm going to have to talk to my coworker who told me about it. I'm shook. <laughs> well, I've been wondering about it. So it's tell me what you. it is. Uh, great. So I'll be covering bird truth or conspiracies. Okay. Jean, do you know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering, Sarah? I don't know. Philippa, what have you been wondering? I've been wondering, in light of getting my new tattoo, I really want to know more of the history behind it because I know that this actually has like a lot of ancient roots, especially back to like, it, pretty sure it was involved in like ancient Egypt and all of that. So I really want to know the history of it and where it became more in our everyday, just like everyone can get a tattoo. The history of tattooing? Mm-hmm. Okay, I can look into that. Maybe I'll get a tattoo before. (laughs) (laughs) Do it! That would be amazing. Oh, my father would die. Well, for research purposes. I did this for, I did it for the research. (laughs) That's amazing. I'm, I'm super interested in that too. So that's everything. Philippa, thank you so much again for being here with us. Thank you so much for listening. This is You Know What I've Been Wondering.